happy day after Halloween. Uh, nope, it's not Halloween. <laughs> Where so are close. we in time? So close. Happy day after Valentine's, Emily. Oh, uh, you as well. Um, I will say I'm more a proponent of celebrating Galentine's Day, which we did do this week with yeah, our we friends did. at Boxed um, over some Parks and Rec episodes and some cheese and some conversations of friendship with Odette Annabelle, Becca Tobin, and Jamie Lynn Sigler here in Austin. Very exciting. Fun events that ATX TV does year-round. But, I mean, Valentine's is fine. The Clearly, the most important part of Valentine's is the heart-shaped Reese's candies. Well, yes. So how many have you eaten, and have you gone today to see them all half off? Well, Okay, first off, how many have I eaten? Is that how many individuals or how many bags? <laughs> it's very, you know, whatever makes you feel better. <laughs> I'm going to say over the past a couple of weeks, maybe like three bags. Sure. That feels like a low number. I mean, I will say in a way that like I feel like I will never get off the soapbox of complaining about this exact thing. I love now that Reese's cups, which I really don't care about cups, these sh- holiday shapes there is a holiday shape out year round. Yes, I do appreciate um, that. I, I do appreciate that. That I am not complaining about. I did send you in January, early January, my gas station, 7-Eleven, that I love deeply, did not have Valentine's Reese's. They had Easter Reese's. <laughs> well, and that's... I mean, and that was a good six weeks before Valentine's Day. Yeah, you asking, am I going to go today or did I go today to get the half off? Yeah. No, because they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. They're literally gone. And uh, I think, honestly, I don't know if it's the stores or the candy companies that are getting smarter because they're like, as opposed to overfilling the shelves and uh, being having to make them because if it's a heart, then on the 15th, you have to make it half off. We're going to not fill the shelves all the way. So a few days before valentine's day you can't find them anymore but you go immediately into easter and there they are so you can still get something that satisfies but it's not a heart anymore if we want to be really clear about my opinions i don't mind because the egg's my favorite i know the egg is the best (laughs) it really is i still had a few trees that were that i I had hoarded away and i do like the trees but i very much enjoyed the hearts eggs and pumpkins they beat they beat all the the eggs yep well, today's release that I am excited about, I don't know that it's very love-filled or Valentine's-filled, not that things have to be, um, but is mm-hmm. Station Eleven, How to Make an Episode, which was presented by Paramount Television Studios and HBO Max. This is a panel. We have released the video. I am I'm so proud of, and honestly, as we program season 12 of the festival... Um, it was also great that it was Station Eleven. It was Season Eleven. I had oh, like a lot yeah. of fun with that. I see it. I see um, it. But is this is an example of like the types of panels that we want to do a lot more of, and ways to really talk to networks and studios about the value of really representing all aspects of making a television show. So on this panel, we have the creator, Patrick Somerville, but we also have the production designer, the casting director, the music supervisor, the costume designer, the cinematographer, and the editor, and looking at all the things that go into making an episode. And there's a lot of different versions of that that we hope to to do this year as well. Um, but this show was just like something that we loved last year or Emily wanted to put it on our 2022 
list as well because it's half and half. I okay. know, I know, it I know. It was Let's on my 2022 list Let's and then <laughs> had to be kicked off. And I'm sure I put something else that was equally as good in its place. But I mean, we could make a long, a longer than top 10 list. Ugh. So, um, but just being able to do this and have the support of the studio and the streaming network on it and to have it represented so strongly. Um, I do want to say that this came out of, uh, really a panel we did for the finale with HBO Max as well but with the help of our friend Jessica Rhodes who was unable to attend at the end of the day but supported from afar really helping us find like how do we talk about Station Eleven in June Mm -hmm. of the festival there were you know Emmy campaignings and things like that happening um but it it was just really thrilling to be able to have the support of the studio and streamer and all of the creatives below the line yeah. bringing this to life. And if you don't know who Jessica Rhodes is, she is a producer extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. Look her up. She's done so many shows that you love and has a huge slate going forward, but yes. definitely someone that you should have been watching for a while, but definitely to watch. And she just makes great television. Yeah. For ATXers, we met her around when we premiered Sharp Objects. That yes. That was our entry point. Because yes. <laughs> she literally wasn't, she had come as support of the shows, wasn't on any panels, but people on panels kept saying her name. And we were like, who is this person that that they keep talking about? Was was she not on the affair panel? Because she was split between HBO and Showtime. So I think that was the next year. I think the first year she came, people just like kept saying her name. We're like, who is this person that they keep saying her name (laughs) from the stage? Um, And then found out she was at the festival, tracked her down. And we're like, you. You seem very cool. Well, I remember, you probably don't remember this half of it then as we like spin off, but she knew who we were because of the releases we had done on the writers panel podcast with with Ben Blacker, but she was familiar with us and she was like, you, you're a festival that likes writers. I love writers. Mm -hmm. Like, so she, there was sort of a mutual admiration, but she has helped us do a lot of programming and has now sat on many panels, both for shows and on topics. And hopefully we'll be back in season 12. Um, but she was kind of the godmother of this panel from afar. Yep. Um, but it was it was really great. It introduced us to we we knew a lot of people, but introduced us to David Eisenberg, the editor who we loved, to Jeannie Bacharach, the casting director who we're now obsessed with, um, and obviously brought us you know Liza Richardson, who'd come many times before with to as a music supervisor. That it's just it is a good example of the programming that we really love to do with that. I mean, you, if you haven't seen station 11, it is available on HBO max. There is also apparently a DVD somewhere out in the world. <laughs> if anyone follows Patrick Somerville, you know what I'm talking about, but I don't know if it's still available, but big proponent of DVDs and physical media as a total aside. If you haven't gone to our website, atxtv.co, we have a page called discover And each month we like to showcase new shows and books and podcasts and sort of curate uh, information on television of things. And January's page, which you can still see, has a nice little write-up by our director of programming, Jennifer Morgan, on physical media and the importance of physical media. And I think about it a lot now in a way that I have a whole bunch of DVDs that everybody told me to get rid of. And I now think you should keep them. (laughs) I uh, totally agree. And I, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot of physical media that takes up a lot of space, but 
I still have CDs. I mean, that we I all love still have books. Who's getting rid of books? No one should get rid of books. <laughs> Zero people should get rid of books. I will yeah. take your books if you want to. So get now rid of we them. have to talk about music, which I have a bunch of records. I don't have the CDs mm-hmm. and tapes. I have a bunch of records. So like, what's what's the visual medium? Is it the DVD? We're keeping the DVD. Great. <laughs> <laughs> DVD extras, it's not the laser disc. I you know no those use are those. Yeah. Too bulky. I don't know how to play those. This is moderated by Chris Ryan of The Ringer, who we also love. Um, So with that, enjoy Station Eleven, How to Make an Episode, presented by Paramount TV Studios and HBO Max. South by Southwest is the world's largest gathering of creative professionals from the tech, film, television, and music industries. The event returns this March with an all-new lineup of talent waiting to be discovered. Their Film and TV Festival offers a first look at some of the year's biggest blockbuster hits and innovative works by new filmmaking talent. For nine days in March, you'll have the chance to see hundreds of exclusive premieres and venues all across Austin. The program features provocative dramas, documentaries, comedies, and genre standouts from all around the globe. Attendees will also have the opportunity to connect with a wide array of industry experts in their conference and mentor sessions. Learn how to join us and them for unparalleled discovery, learning, and networking at sxsw.com slash attend. So these are the people who made Station Eleven. Give them a round of applause. This is a thrill because I've talked to you, Patrick, a bunch of times about the show. We've had Patrick on the watch to discuss the themes and the ideas and our emotional reaction, our intellectual reaction to the show, but it's really rare that I get a chance to have so many wonderful people to talk to at once about the making of the show and how what goes into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was watching these guys come up. Uh, it was incredible because you never get to have this kind of conversation, and maybe it's not obvious to people at home when they watch TV shows, but uh, the show and this scene is a perfect example. It just wouldn't exist without all these imaginations and a bunch more uh, who, who aren't here. And so it's, it's more a mesh of a, and collaboration of a lot of different people's points of views than um, one showrunner or writers or directors. And we wanted to show this, uh, this piece of episode 10 um, that, that you guys just saw, just, just because it was so special that night walking out into, onto set, uh, it, was, it was overwhelming because it was the density of work that was visible everywhere you looked, from the, the wagons to the costumes, um, to the music that was playing that we, we could hear, um, to and the shot select. It, it was a culmination, I think, of, of many years of work of many different departments simultaneously. Uh, and that, that's really rare that, that it all comes together in one place in time. And so there, there isn't a, a pixel uh, that, that isn't someone's uh, Year, years of thinking in the, back, in the background of any of those shots. Now, uh, I think a lot of people who are familiar with this show are familiar with uh, the story of the making of the show, which is intertwined with what the show is actually about itself, uh, with the pandemic and everything. It was a very, I, I think a labor of love is fair to say for everybody here, and one that was a really extensive marathon production. So Ruth, I was wondering if we could start with you because I would imagine you start getting involved what, at the script level? I mean, are, are, when, when somebody comes on as production designer, does it usually start with concepts, or are you reading story, or are you reading script? Um, I think when I came on, it w- there was a pilot script, and um, I started uh, meeting with Hero and Patrick first, and I was in another country. 
uh, working on something else, and um, I listened to the book Station Eleven as I was driving around Budapest, and it just had such a meaningful um, story to me. And also knowing Patrick's work, I really wanted to be part of what anything he was doing. So. I put a pitch book together and met with Hero and Patrick and showed some of the ideas that I had and then Hero sent me his book and clearly we were on the same path to what we wanted to do and like you don't what, know Ruth and Hero had the same photos in their decks <laughs> that, that they both made independent of each other. What is reference points? Yeah. Oh wow. So like when you go to a meeting, when you read a script and you're gonna have a meeting with a showrunner or director, you try to pitch your ideas, you know, you read a script and somehow it moves you and images start coming together and you kind of gather collective ideas of what you imagine the world could be and they're just somebody else's photos but they have some kind of resonance to you and it's a way for when you meet with a showrunner that you can share ideas and see where you think the story may go. Now Jeannie, one of the things I love so much about this show is that the people in it both look like people that you see on the street and people that you see in your real life and don't look like people you usually see on television. I thought you had such a great eye for that. What kind of conversations did you have with Patrick, with Hero, with people about how to populate these actually multiple worlds when you think about it? I think what was important was that it reflect the world. And those were some of the early conversations we had and there was the world before and the world after and that for, um, for the character of uh, Alexandra, uh, Alex, um, that you know, as, as a post-pandemic, um, you know, we wanted to reflect sort of a, a non-traditional way of um, looking and feeling and you know, that, that in the post-pan world, um, people weren't gonna be kind of sticking to the same sort of norms and ideas of sexuality, of gender. Um, so she certainly was somebody that, you know, we talked a lot about how that was gonna be important, um, but really about reflecting the world. You know, I, I kinda wanna open this up and, and everybody feel free to jump in, but you touched on something there, which is Patrick kinda communicating certain themes from the script, certain ideas from the script, and how it translates into the hands-on work that you're doing in your departments. Um, what were those collaborations like? I mean, does anybody ha remember any early conversations with Patrick about this is what this show is about, <laughs> you know, and this is how it's going to be reflected in the work you're doing? Helen, will you tell the story of Dr. Levin's costume? Because I feel like that was maybe one the first big conceptual breakthrough that we kind of came to together, all of us in, in Chicago, and it really meant a lot for the yeah. show. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Patrick is like, the best showrunner in a way where he gives like very emotional, you know, written like from the author point of view notes. He's not gonna be the type of person that looks at a picture or reference and be like, I don't like that button. That's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> so he's, he's the best at that. And with Dr. Eleven, it was hard because it was like supposed to be a person from a comic book, but we didn't have the comic book yet, but we were shooting it before there was an artist for it. Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of conversation about like who this astronaut is. And we were really struggling to find yeah. the language the, to describe yeah. the feeling that we were looking for. And yeah. I think it, it, it was, there was a, like the plane of masculinity. We didn't want it to be a heroic figure, but we no. didn't want it to be a joke. And, 
and we were stuck. Like I yeah. couldn't find a way to say it. But I think eventually the words came out like we want Dr. Eleven to feel like a janitor, like a really worn out space janitor. <laughs> and um, that was one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was that helped that helped us. The that, one rung of the ladder. Yeah, that did really help. But also like I was like a person possessed. Like I had so many I literally looked at every space movie ever made. I looked at every astronaut suit ever made. Um, you know, Ruth had a huge book of astronaut suits that we that I studied. Um, but then it was about like trying to make it something familiar. And also, Patrick was very specific about like the face of Dr. Eleven. He wants the face to feel very human. But it's like, how do you make a costume like that when you don't see a face look very human and sympathetic and mysterious at the same time? And so we actually made Dr. Eleven's head way bigger than any astronaut suit ever. <laughs> and uh, we came with these like teal color that they had to dye everything to match um, that was reflective of an old um, interior suit from the 1960s. Um, yeah, there was just so many sort of like, and we purposely like made all his parts rusty, his backpack rusty. So it was kind of this blend between, and also like, this sort of blend between like realistic things and almost like a cartoony illustration uh, aspect to him. But I showed Patrick like literally like little tiny drawings to like full out like renderings by our illustrator. And I had a book where it was just like astronaut after astronaut after, I don't know how he, s he could stand me, but it was like, <laughs> I was like, we're gonna get this right. <laughs> the artist, it was the, it was the artist who, it was when we said imaginary friends yeah. that you had that last idea, right? Yeah. I don't remember that artist's name that you brought in to show us his work where he had I, exploded kids' drawings into into paintings. I forgot who it was, well, but I remember I brought up Chagall as someone that I really wanted to uh, mimic because like Chagall, you know, is an artist that built these like fantastical costumes that like look like they were an illustration, but like existed in the real world and that was something that's very important to me actually when we went to build it the place that built it global effects they were like this is not a astronaut suit like i don't <laughs> even know what you're handing me like to build and i was just like it's more of a mascot than a functioning it's like the mascot of the show you know the, this sounds very kind of uh, organized. We're in a line and we have microphones, but really these conversations in Chicago and then later yeah. were happening uh, with like a bunch of people manically around a table. <laughs> a big thing down and people are pointing. So yeah. this, this, the crew was really special, I think. Like we, we, we generated ideas together, um, which <laughs> doesn't always happen. If I can go back to my casting question for a minute. Me. Yes. <laughs> Back to you, Jeannie. Did you always think of all those things like after you're like, oh, I just wish I said no. But I, I will say, just in terms of the casting too, I think in, in in some of what you're touching on, all of you, is is both an authenticity and an accessibility. That it was so important to go on the journey with these people, so that accessibility was going to be, you know, and and connecting to those characters and finding a way in for our audience. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you all collaborated with one another. You know, I think for layman, in layman terms, you know, like you look at it and you, you think, well, that department has an office and then this department has an office and maybe you see each other at the water cooler like at a normal job, but I'm sure that there's more interaction. But Liza and Steve, I imagine you have very specific experiences because Liza, you're working with 
one of the best scores I've heard on a TV show in recent memory, and also a combination of like diegetic and needle drop music. And then Steve, you're working with other directors of photography, se several different directors. What were your interdepartmental collaborations, I guess, like you're you know, in the music and in, the, in terms of cinematography? Um, well, I think for me, it all, it all starts with really a, a great book and great scripts. And, um, you know, the first two episodes that were shot in Chicago by Christian Sprenger uh, and that Hero directed, they were very, um, very minimal. They had a kind of elegant simplicity to them. And as soon as I saw those, I, I knew that um, it was, they were speaking a language that I could carry on through the rest of the episodes. And um, it, when I met with Patrick and with Ruth, it became clear that we all kind of, without even really, I, I often feel like we didn't even speak that much about things, that there was often this kind of intuitive. Oh, really? <laughs> I felt like there was kind of an intuitive connection often, like I, with Ruth often, we would go to a location and Ruth and I would often look in the same direction and say, okay, well, this is, this is it right here. This is where we have to look. And, um, and annoy Jeremy. <laughs> and, and annoy Jeremy. That um, is true. I think there were, there were in, in, so to Ruth and Steve were uniquely charged with having to build what year 20 looked like, but in different ways. What the world felt like, I think Steve visually and Ruth, uh, and a, I would say even deeper conceptual level and Helen I mean everyone was doing that we didn't know what year 20 was but I think get, Steve joined us when we went to Canada okay. and so the big task I think when we got there was what the fuck does year 20 look like um, and because we really didn't have much idea at all yet and and so yeah these two were uh, scouting all over the place to, over and over again yeah I think Patrick was clear that year 20 wanted to um, we wanted to embrace nature and nature you know didn't want to be threatening and um, you know just because we were all most of the year 20 stuff we shot in in Toronto in the summer it had its own aesthetic of being lush and and um, you know quite beautiful so that automatically kind of gave it a different tone I would say we had the extra challenge that it was the dead of winter uh, as we were as we were scouting as, yes. as well, yeah, so yeah. yeah, we were guessing. I mean, I just always want to point out that we had one extraordinary experience that um, most television series don't ever get is we had done the pilot in episode 103 in Chicago, and that was when we started reading about COVID in the newspaper as we were going home to have our hiatus, and then the project was on hold, and um, somehow. Patrick and David Nixay, I suppose our producer, gave us time during the summer. It was Helen, myself, Patrick, and Jeremy who was joining the show. We had a month or two, it was a month, of I had a crew on, I had um, some people doing drawings and doing virtual reality drawings, but it was four weeks where we could just imagine anything because at that point we hadn't thought about what is this traveling symphony going to look like? What is Hamlet going to look like? What is year 20 going to look like? We all knew what we didn't want it to look like. So that four weeks, we would Zoom you know, once or twice a week and just throw out whatever you wanted. And there was no pressure for time, money, anything. So it was some, you know, you never get that in a television series because from day one, you're always like 
under the fire to you know produce documents and get things ready and budget and so I think that allowed for us to go to Toronto having a lot in our hearts about what the future of the show is going to be. Ruth made uh, the airport in Unreal Engine. Uh, so one day we looked at the wagons deployed in a circular space in a 3D rendered environment that didn't exist uh, and we were like, yes, that, that's, that's where we're going. And I asked to enter it uh, using an Oculus, but we never quite figured that out. <laughs> and, and out of that too came a, a Helen's design for Kirsten's uh, early costume stuff in episode two, and including the, the puffer cape, is that right? Which are not two huge conceptual breakthroughs for us. Yeah, I mean, I think always her costume was gonna be like, like where all the other costumes were gonna come from. She was gonna set the tone of it um, and you know I always wanted the costumes to be like because we're doing Shakespeare but like I didn't want it to be like traditional European costumes and I just wanted to you know and then you could think about these characters as people who like get together to make these things but they're not like by any means professional and it could be anything that they want and so it's like how do you show a Gertrude a queen without the European references to that. How do you show a king? How do you show Hamlet? Um, Patrick was very much like Hamlet should be black. I always imagined him in black. And so we did do uh, all black outfit, but then it felt a little bit too severe for the world. And so that's why we had like different sort of textures with the puffers and, um, and kind of like different paintings all over the, the garment, which you can't, tell all the details from the, um, the, what you see on screen, but there was an enormous amount of trial and error trying to make it have the right textures and tones so it doesn't look like, you know, we're staging another um, King Lear like in the first episode where it felt very different. Can I ask just to go back to something, Ruth, that you were talking about, and I'd be curious to hear everybody chime in here. You know, in that hiatus that you had and in this sort of longer than usual break, how much do you think the real world wound up impacting the way you were conceiving of the show, the work that you were doing, and do you ever think about the normal version of Station Eleven that just goes right into you know, this next block of shooting and you just are, the train keeps on running, and what it would have, how, how your work might have been different specifically? Well, I can say for sure, for me, it made all the difference in the world but it, yet it felt very seamless. Um, I just remember the first time I came out of my apartment, because I had been away for almost two years, and when we broke for the hiatus, all of a sudden we were in lockdown, and it was the first time I went on the road driving and feeling the sense of speed, which I hadn't, you know, been, we'd all been locked up, and just like, so motion, sound, the birds, mm -hmm. nature, it had such a huge impact on me that I knew, you know, and Emily St. John Mandel had actually written about that, that that was just so organic to how we were discussing moving forward to year 20. Oh, yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts about, about that, that hiatus? Um, I think, you know, during the pandemic, I was like, oh, you know, when in times of dire need, people turned back to like crafts because everyone was like making a sourdough bread <laughs> and like crochet. R.I.P. to my sourdough bread, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like the fact that like at that moment when the world, you're not so sure about it, you go 
to do a form of like art, going back to working with your hands. And I thought that was very important in this future and it informed like a lot of, like with Alex, like we made a lot of her things because you know, they're like found objects. And so like, what is this world where they find all these objects and sort of cobble together things without rules? Um, but I just thought that was like pretty fascinating that you know, out of all the things we could be doing with our time, like people were like knitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Liza, I wanted to go back to my, my, my music question there just briefly, because you're responsible, you know, somewhat for how the show feels, somewhat for how the show sounds, somewhat for the taste of the show in, in certain ways, and you're filling in some emotional colors with the music you're choosing. And you're also choosing things that characters in the show are talking about or playing for one another. Um, it's, can you talk to me a little bit about the sort of multifaceted nature of this job? Yeah, so pretty much almost everything that is um, talked about as a you know, a song as a character has already been conceived and scripted by Patrick. So, um, but I was interested in what you said because um, we talked a lot in the beginning. Well, first of all, I'm the music supervisor, but we have an amazing composer, Dan Romer. Dan Romer, yeah. Who's not here. Why not? <laughs> what up with that? Um, you, but, you can cover the music <laughs> element. But he did not only score, but a, a lot of original songs. And in the beginning conversations about that, similar to what you're talking about, it was just like, the instruments are kind of broken. They've been repaired a lot. They're, um, they're going to sound a little bit different. And what does that sound like? And what you know, it, a ragtag yeah, sort and, of... Yeah, and that led to Dan... Uh, I asked him to break a, a cello and play it, yeah. for, uh, but he, he wouldn't like do that. that. Uh, but he strung like it with, with something like the wrong strings, and he, uh, he eventually found what a sound in the show uh, that we called the demon cello uh, that comes up now and then. Uh, it's like a... Like, and yeah. it, it really stands in for the virus, but he's running right. like a cello through all sorts of, of all outrageous... Um, pieces of technology to get there, but yeah, yeah. That, it, it came from what you're talking about, like rebuilding out of the pieces of a broken thing. Right, yeah. right. And it's, for me anyway, it's great to be sitting with, so I mostly work in post. I did, you know, I was on in the beginning reading the scripts and helping prepare songs for set, but I never went to set, so it's great to be sitting with you guys because, um, you. so I, when, when people ask me how I, do music supervision, I really honestly take my cues from the costume design, the set design, the way it's shot, and the casting, and, um, and the level of um, complexity that I'm, I mean, I can, I can look at a script and get a few ideas, but I really respond to what I'm seeing. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is just that um, David and I have worked together on uh, Leftovers and Watchmen. I worked with Patrick on on leftovers, and so, you know, David and I, I feel like have a really good connection musically. You're two high taste individuals. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but, but, but he just cuts things so well and makes your songs just incredible. So it's, I mean, all all I can do as a music supervisor is bring, you know, ideas to the table or um, horse to water. But he makes it like really 
yummy and tasty water and makes it, I don't know. Anyway, I was wondering, cause for the benefit of the audience and actually for my own edification, could, could you all sort of walk us through like a garden variety day from like a, a day, like what, like how does, what's like a day look like making Station Eleven in Toronto, say, doesn't matter what episode, but just pick one that maybe you were all working on and what's like the schedule look like? Well, it, it's a little different for all of us, uh, for, for Steve, for Ruth, um, these three, uh, Jeannie, Liza, and David, were back home, and so... I was just at home imagining. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's job comes at a kind of a different time in the cycle, but my sense of Ruth uh, as we were in production was she represented the future to me. She, she represented everything that we're, that's coming in the next three weeks. She was scouting, uh, she was building new sets, she was planning what we were going to be doing down the road. Same for Helen and her team. Um, they were always sort of ahead of me but there's a set presence for costumes, so I, I, and I was kind of, could only think about today, uh, honestly. And so maybe my day I would go over and see um, some new costumes in, in Helen's trailer that the actors had just tried on. Um, I think I would hear from Ruth on a scout, on a FaceTime suddenly as I was walking to stages. Uh, and then I would get to the stages and see uh, Steve in his jumpsuit, uh, looking very serious, uh, <laughs> um, standing beside we'll Jeremy. We'll get back to the jumpsuit. I want to hear about this. He only wore a jumpsuit the entire shoot. I was going to wear it today, but... I you should have. <laughs> he never changed. It was always blue jumpsuit. Um, and I would go to set, and I would you know, see what they were shooting, and there would be technicalities. And then I'd go back and, and work on the cut of an episode with David. Um, but... That doesn't tell the story of what, what these guys were doing in a day. We were also all getting up at like five and going to bed at midnight every, every day. To throw that in and there. Except for David who's rolling in at noon just like, hey guys, West Coast living. Yeah, <laughs> must be nice. I don't know, the one thing you mentioned about the order and the sequence of how we were filming, I mean, Helen and I were talking last night about when we watched the show and the series, we were like, what? Did that, like, so we, we, lived on trust and Patrick's constant pitching of how It's the going story to make was, sense, right? I promise. And so it was really nice just being blind and just trusting in the story was going to come together because when the show itself is so complex that if you try to figure it all out like you can only block certain amount of concepts, you know, very broadly at each time and you know, frequently you're out roaming the countryside and trying to tell people in a field, oh, that's where the house is going to be, and that's where this is going to be, and it's all imagination. But when it all came together, I was surprised. And I wasn't surprised, but I just didn't, I didn't know the story as well. You can as say I, that. I, that's I was, okay. <laughs> no, but I, we, I did not know the story to that extent. And I know you were talking about, like, you two had a language of how these pieces were all going to go together. Helen, do you remember the, the day from the clip and you too. It was it was very special because uh, you know something good is happening when uh, when the other members of the teams and departments start coming out and taking photos of themselves <laughs> with the actors uh, in between shoots. But everyone was sort of and Lisa uh, uh, from makeup and Nani from hair too. Yeah. Kind of all the HODs sort of came. It's just like three o'clock in the morning also uh, because that the, those were night shoots and so you you start at dusk and and wrap that. at dawn. But I was like sleeping in my car. And then all of a sudden, I got, <laughs> like on the walkie, they were like, okay, everyone's getting dressed, and you're like rushing to, to set to get people dressed. It was like pretty amazing, because we had been working on these costumes like literally for like months, and like, 
you know, doing trials on body doubles, having the real actors there, um, me doing like a lot of research and and just like having inspo photos to our tailoring room, our aging dining room, who made all those fabulous things. And a big part of my day was like going in and see the fabulous sort of inventions they cook up when I show them a reference of something that I want. Um, and you know, sometimes I would te text Patrick like a picture of a rock and be like, I want this for like the costumes. He always gets references that are like never about clothes. And he's like, yeah, go, go for it. Um, but I think that was one of the biggest things when all the actors came together and put on the stuff. It was like just so amazing. And I do have to say, poor actors, because you know, paper mache, you can't sit down <laughs> in anything. And so they were like, they were doing like a 13, 14 hour shoe, and they were like literally, they had a stool where they knelt, like they kneeled. They were pretty they crabby that night, I gotta they say. They couldn't <laughs> sit. Like, Saeed's character had a full, um, his, his, he was wearing a bodysuit, and then the outside of the bodysuit was like this skirt we made out of soda cans that was like glued together. And he literally, like nobody could sit or just be comfortable the whole night, but they sucked it up. And it was just kind of like, uh, it was just so magical to, to have it all come together. And for Ruth's beautiful production designs, and for, you know, and then they did play the music, and then everyone sort of mined. Yeah, and Dan, like, Dan had written the Hamlet score ahead of time, so yeah. it was actually playing there to. That was another unusual element of the show and yeah. the music. Sometimes we needed to be ahead. Yeah. We generated our own music a lot, too. So Dan and Liza, too, uh, were, were prepping, for example, for Nabon's rap. Um, yeah. Which was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did that the first take perfectly and did it five times. If you get an entire group of Canadian crew dancing, yeah. uh, that's, that's impressive. Uh, they, then we were new to them, too. That was like day five. You sent me his uh, rehearsal or audition. What yes. was it? And it was perfect, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so, I, yeah, in, in quarantine, we had to quarantine for two weeks in the hotel before um, Nibban practiced. And I, I'm, Dan made the, the beat out of my voice, uh, and, sent, and we sent it to Nibban, and he sent me a video back, and it, he was already perfect there. So he was ready. Um, but yeah, we, that took some preparation to be ready for the musical moments. And, yeah. and Liza and Dan both did a lot. Yeah, some of the musical moments are so stunning in this. And you know, I think that the cool thing about them is there are moments in shows or movies where it's a great song and it's playing. But it really, you can really feel like the ways in which everybody here worked together and everybody here, their, their work came together, especially in those musical moments of the Smog song we were talking about backstage. Or the Bill Callahan song that's Bill playing, Callahan. yeah. Uh, when, yeah, I mean, that's that's such a wonderful moment. I wanted to ask before we get to some questions from the audience, yeah, not to put people on the spot, but was there a moment in the show when you were watching it, you know, after after it had come out, that you watched and you were like, I'm particularly proud of of this piece of work, and it could be something of your own, hopefully. But if it was something else, that's fine. But Steve, I thought I'd start with you. Was there a um, for me, uh, making episode nine, the whole birthing sequence, all the stuff at the abandoned Kmart or uh, Habermakers, um, while I was shooting it, I, I had a feeling it was going to be beautiful and moving. And whenever I see that sequence, the whole birthing thing, I, it always brings me to tears. And I, it's such a, yeah, I just, I love that whole. That's a pretty sequence. common reaction to that scene, yeah. Helen, what about you? Anything? I mean, the whole thing was like such a joy. Um, 
you know, I always get, so when we shot episode one, it was like really getting a sense of like the world, but also like these people that I'm collaborating with and just like making young Kirsten's dress, her little pink dress, um, and then putting her in that puffer. And I remember we were doing the screen test and I was trying to make it all pretty. And then Patrick came to set and he's like, let's zip her up. And she looked so odd with the little dress under and the little zipper, like the little puffer zipped up. And he was like, that's how we do it in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> the Chicago like, way? Yeah. <laughs> he's I, like, it's I not pretty. I grew up pretty. in Wisconsin, yeah, you gotta zip that up. <laughs> yeah, um, and so it's just like, and I knew like, from that moment, like I really found a creative home because it's not every day where you get to make something equally beautiful, but also equally with people who that have a sense of humor about the world and about all the nuances of what it's like to be human. And like, you know, that's not something, a lot of times, you know, when you're working, they ask you to take that away because they want everything to look perfect. Um, but this was very much about like, let's explore you know, like just the quirks and and of people and the weirdness in people and like, it's just it was just so special. Anyone else have a, a moment that they're particularly proud of? Jeannie, was there anybody that you were, when you saw them on screen, you were like, yes, got that one. Well, I, it's you know, casting is so strange because you know you're there at the beginning, and then if it shoots out of town, and especially with COVID, I didn't get to go to Toronto um, or Chicago. So you, you're kind of, I, I think of myself as like the mother yeah. and you sort of go through the pregnancy with the creators and uh, you put you know, this group together, you, you give birth to it and you send it out into the world and then you know, I don't see it until dailies or the final cuts. So for me, it was the entirety. I mean, really to just, um, see what these you know actors did um who i believed in so much but but went took it to a whole other level and i would say especially um the scenes with matilda and uh himesh and naban i mean those scenes in the apartment just killed me but also episode, uh, you, also uh, episode nine i mean the, the entire ensemble is is pretty remarkable um for for just across the board it's like we could feel the baseball team of unbelievable actors yeah. Um, and but a shout out to Robin Cook and Robin and, Cook in Canada and uh, Jen and, and uh, Mickey in Chicago. You know. But I, I wanted just to add, Danny Zavato uh, was an, uh, who plays Tyler. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of like lev leveling up or stepping, I think he found like a new gear while we were there in production and found uh, he's incredible in the show and I think he was perfect. And it was very, very difficult uh, to find the right person for that. that and then process. that's another genie finds that, that turned out to be exactly right. Thank you. I mean, can I talk about a tribe <laughs> called Quest a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, that to me, um, you know, is Patrick's idea, but just the way. So I have a friend, his father is from India and he's half white and he, you know, he, he's a record collector and a, lover of jazz and hip-hop like a lot of us and he was just blown away by the the art blakey song earlier in that episode then that song was the song that was sampled into um the tribe called quest song and then we changed the lyrics just slightly from black man to brown man and i mean my friend was just i mean he was he felt like that moment was for him 
And um, I, I was just, that was a moment. I mean, there's so many moments. And, and I love the parliament with the tuba, and I, I love that. But, um, but also just the Tribe Called Quest, just the way they start moving and dancing. And like, we've all done that. And we all love hip hop. And to me, that was just such a celebration. Of, I just. There were two, I had two experiences where it was the Tribe episode and the Bill Callahan episode where I would randomly look at my phone and be like eight texts. And it would be like, Tribe, Tribe, <laughs> Callahan. It would just be like from all these different people. Uh, Ruth, what were you particularly proud of? Well, I was uh, starting with um, Hamlet. Um, Sizzlebird, come on. Oh, well, Sizzlebird was very important. Very obscure. That's too obscure. Um, that's in my own head. Uh, but episode 10, when we finally got Hamlet together, and it was all, as you can imagine, very, very difficult, and even seeing if we could get the wagons in the building, if they'd fit in the elevators, everything was to an inch, and everything at that point was very, very last minute, and you still have these big ideas, and just... It was the apotheosis of like everything all of us had been working on, like my summer work with Helen and what are these costumes and the costumes were totally going to affect what the symphony looked like because they had to be hand in hand and one couldn't outdo the other. They had to be completely seamless together. And then um, working with Steve, Steve had a really huge challenge on how to light that scene. And so that was a wonderful collaboration of how we were going to, and it was, that conversation went on for like four months before we actually shot it. And just seeing Steve kind of take over um, year 20 after having worked with Christian on um, uh, year zero. And then the music came in and they were the actors were playing the instruments and so you were just like living at that moment and I really absolutely fell apart crying and had to leave because we still had like another you know two weeks or so to work but that was the key moment of everything you've been doing for a year or so maybe two years and every other department was doing the best work and kind of finishing this idea that we were kind of exploring and finally nailed. Yeah, I was really inspired by Ruth's design for the vehicles that folded out with stages. <laughs> and from when I first saw that, I, I, I couldn't wait for that moment. And that night was really kind of the fruition of all those ideas and seeing them was amazing. And also, the, the, the costumes were always so amazing. And every day we, you know, actors would show up with costumes that we had, I hadn't seen, and they were just uh, so beautiful and amazing and was always so inspiring. And in the case of the, that scene there, part of what we had to take, take into consideration was the size of some of the costumes and the lighting so that we didn't catch the actors on fire. So <laughs> yeah, we, we talked a lot about that. That was so nerve-wracking because I remember in an earlier meeting, Patrick was like, yeah, we need fire. And I was like, wait, no. <laughs> Please, God, no. Um, and eventually they were like, just make the, it's going to be okay. So a lot of the costumes were sprayed with this like fire. We did tests to yeah, see what looked good on costumes without ruining yeah, the texture. Because traditionally, you know, like if you're doing a stunt, all costumes have to be natural fibers in order for it to be near fire. And I was very set on everything as synthetic as possible because that's what would be left in this world. And so the fire, it was just so nerve-wracking. And then, you know, when the ghost, Hamlet's father, like, lit that torch, I was like, please, God. <laughs> his, like, his whole entire head's made out of cardboard. Like, please, please. <laughs> like, they were, like, on. I was like, please don't be set on fire. <laughs> Pat, do you have, I mean, I, 
it's hard, I guess, to ask you because it's it's all of it. But I mean, like, what, what do you what do you think? Is there a moment that that has become like a sneaky favorite moment or a moment you're super proud of, of about the show? In the show? Yeah. I mean, I, in terms of just like the experience of making it, yeah. it is it is sort of it's all of all of theirs, uh, and then every moment of making the show somehow it was a it felt like a unique and maybe never recreatable situation and then the pandemic on top of it um, just made it more rare um, and special and almost you know magic I don't know holy but I, I would say um, I had a moment um, I had a moment watching Danielle uh, do the monologue in in the dark uh, she did it the rehearsal first um, we weren't rolling. Do you remember this, Steve? Uh, and she was only lit by that cell phone, which Steve did not want to be using to light her face, but I made him. <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs> but she did the, the, the monologue and the exchange. We had the actor who was the pilot sitting off camera to read with her. Yeah. Um, and we were all just quiet in the dark, and she did it, and he did his line perfectly right at the end, and, and she says, uh, what did the message say? Um, that I'll be home soon. And he, he just crushed it, and everyone, everyone started crying <laughs> like on the set. Um, and it, it was a moment, I think, in the, in the shoot where it was about a month in, in Canada, and we knew we knew we were in good shape, but Danielle coming back um, and bringing her energy back uh, and arriving, and then just doing that scene made it made it feel like it was it was just gonna work. Uh, we have time for a couple of questions. If anybody has any over there, um, more of a comment than a question. No, I'm kidding. Um, the whole nice. cast well, is well, well done. Thanks. I think I gave you the classics. Um, everyone in the cast everyone on the stage is amazing, but I'm particularly interested in hearing more about the casting of Matilda, Matilda Lawler. Because first of all, you're trying, I would assume that, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Mac Mackenzie Davis was cast first. So was it really, was it very intimidating to think about someone matching her level, which is very high? And then was it hard to find Matilda? And what was it like to find her? Um. I mean, you know, when you're trying to, to find a younger version of Mackenzie, for sure, uh, a challenge just because she's so uh, extraordinary as an actress. Um, we ultimately didn't read that many people. I had seen Matilda in a play uh, called The Ferryman on Broadway um, a couple years before, and she had just sort of blown my mind. She um, was a huge ensemble piece. And there was a monologue that an actress named Fanula Flanagan did that I think was probably like a five or ten minute monologue. And uh, Matilda and some of the other younger kids were just sitting around her listening to the story. I think I'd seen the play had been running for several months already. And I could not take my eyes off of Matilda, even though it was about Fanula because she was so engaged in what was probably the, you know, hundredth time she had heard this monologue. Uh, and I just, you know, there was just, again, she was so present. Um, and there just was something about her. So, and, you know, weirdly enough, she matched enough, but... Um, well, we didn't think about it, like, uh, find someone who can match Mackenzie, and I think that was good. I think we just let go of that. Yeah, um, it Because it was 20 good. years away, and we... 
We just needed a really good actor. Yeah, who had you know the 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 fierceness, the vulnerability, and the old soulness. The old soulness. It, it was um, it was the the moment that really just made it very very clear was when uh, Himesh and Matilda did a chemistry read together for us, and their dynamic existed already. Yeah, um, it was. Uh, that the, was the what very we very few moments in casting where you just see that magic that happens in the moment. I mean, and she was 10, 11 at the time. And I don't think yeah. there, between you, me, and uh, Hero, and the, we were all weeping. I mean, just in that moment. We, was, but also laughing. They were yeah. very funny together. And that uh, also was incredibly important. And Himesh had to like step it up yeah. in that room. It was yeah. like, you could just see this moment where they started and like Himesh just like this like. It's like, oh shit, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. Bring it. Any other questions? Uh, so a bunch of you have talked about how useful the time was to just sort of play around and throw stuff at the wall and kind of, you know, uh, find time to just revel in everything, I think, as before you were getting into that second block of shooting. Do you think there's a way to, in the way shows are made, bring that kind of time or find that kind of time in other productions that aren't going to have the same pandemic shutting things down? You're shaking your head. <laughs> it's just money, and that's the problem. And keeping keeping a team together for that amount of time is is nearly impossible. So it was it was uniquely uh, the pandemic that created a situation where we could have a little bit, have the conceptual ideas, have this team stay intact, uh, and then have a whole bunch of time to steep, and then go back at it. I. I think it's recreatable if you spend uh, outrageously, but I don't know how to convince anyone to do that uh, because I, I can see a version where it doesn't work at all, um, and then you're an idiot. It also happens sometimes you get on a show and, and there everybody, all the keys and everybody, you might not all be jiving. You might find that there's slight differences here and there, but I really felt on the show it, it, it moves so easily in terms of how we were all feeling about the aesthetic or you know, choices of where to shoot. And so we were all, I think, really aligned, which was made it easier, actually, to move, move quickly. Because we yeah. actually, we were on the road for a lot of the time. We were kind of like a big road show, always going to different locations. And so like the Traveling Symphony a little bit, kind of? <laughs> yeah. So logistically, it was really challenging. But I think because we were so in sync with each other, it, it made it easier. Well, I, can, I think you can see on the screen that that was the case. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so thank much you guys. to everybody here. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.